Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, "Creation Unforgivable" by David H. Keller. First published in April, 1930 issue of Weird Tales. This is uh, getting to be a habit with us, uh, David H. Keller. Uh, he's, you know, when we started doing this podcast, um, I had some authors in mind, and I, I'm pretty sure you had some authors in mind, and we did a lot of those authors. Uh, but we've also discovered a few people, I think, along the way that are just really underrepresented. I'm thinking Maria Morovsky. I'm thinking David H. Keller. Um, I agree completely. He's he's uh, he doesn't have the stature of. Uh, a lot of the people who were writing in the same magazines as as him, and he had a long career. But uh, he, there's something going on in his stories that I think is is really interesting, and and he deserves more attention. So let's give him some, huh? <laughs> Indeed. Um, let's let's come back to that after we've talked about the story, because I think that one of the reasons he hasn't gotten enough attention is actually addressed by this story. Hmm. Yeah, so, it's a very uh, interesting it, story that way, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want to... So we should also point out um, that Keller is uh, reputed to be the first psychiatrist who wrote for the Pulps. Mm-hmm. He did have a, a long and active career, but he often signed his name as David H. Keller, M.D. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like Doc E.E. E. Doc Smith. He was That's one of right. those people who kept a title in his name all the time. Uh, what that was supposed to mean, I don't know. And in this case, Creation Unforgivable, I don't know whether he wanted to have the MD or not. Hmm. I only know what the editor allowed to have appear on the page. Mm-hmm. No MD this time. No. I do have um, something I came across that's pretty interesting. We, we've talked a bit about his his history in previous shows on his, his uh, stories. But uh, this is from the back of um, a collection from 1947 called Life Everlasting, which is uh, based on a... The, it, it is the title of one of his stories, an early one, I think, from Amazing. But uh, this is the uh, back of the dust jacket of uh, this 1947 book. Um, it has a photo of uh, Keller. Uh, and it says, David H. Keller, M.D., Lieutenant Colonel, USA, retired. Um And then it goes like this. About the author. The author of Life Everlasting, at the age of 68, is a lieutenant colonel retired in the U.S. Army. He has seen a long, useful life. For eight years, he practiced as a horse and buggy doctor in a little village of 300 souls, Russell, Pennsylvania. In the First World War, he rose to the rank of captain in his country's service. After his discharge, he went into an active psychiatric practice, serving as a superintendent and assistant superintendent in a number of hospitals for the mentally ill. From his long study of human beings under stress comes not only his uncanny insights into human psychology, but also his internal compassion for people and their problems. In World War II, he rose to the rank of lieutenant colonel, and uh, serving most of his time as a medical professor on the faculty of the Army Chaplain School at Harvard, where he taught more than 6,000 clergymen of all denominations. Dr. Keller sold his first story, The Revolt of the Pedestrians, in 1928 to Hugo Gernsback, 
uh, for Amazing Stories. Since then, he has gone on to write and succeeded in having published well over a hundred tales of science fiction, fantasy, and horror, maintaining tremendously high standards. Uh, from time to time, Keller Yarns, and that's one word, Keller Yarns, have been listed uh, in the O. Henry Best Short Stories of the Year. His book, The Devil and the Doctor, was published by Simon & Schuster in 1941. His stories have been extensively reprinted in France and England. Um, when I uh, found out about this, I, I put it out in the world, and um, uh, one of the scholars from who I follow on Twitter uh, named uh, Bobby Deary, he, he uh, pointed out that uh, Farnsworth Wright, who is the editor of this magazine at this time, um, Weird Tales, uh, cons- supposedly consulted Keller uh, privately about his Parkinson's disease. Um, so mm. he was definitely aware, that is, Farnsworth Wright was definitely aware he was a medical doctor. Um, uh, he was also, and it's not mentioned in m- many of his biographies, but he was a sexology doctor as well. <laughs> he wrote a lot of sexology books, which were very popular in the, in the 60s, which uh, he died in 66. So it's a, he's, he's got a lot going on, and I, I just think that the most important extract from that back cover is that being a d- horse and buggy doctor in a little village of 300 souls in Russell, Pennsylvania. Um, that is, I think, very much in this story. Mm. Let me uh, give a brief summary of the story, and then perhaps you'll tell us how that view fits in, all right? Mm-hmm. Creation Unforgivable. It begins, My wife used to think that I took the writing game too seriously. The entire story is a first-person narrative by a writer who is not making a lot of money by his writing. Uh, His wife is the voice of reason, trying to get him to tailor what he produces to the marketplace. He, however, is utterly taken by his characters. While he's writing, they are real people to him. They fade away. Um, once he finishes whatever it is he's writing. But while he's in the process of writing, they're really there. Uh, He begins to wonder, indeed, as he focuses more on his writing, whether or not these characters are are actually people from his own past lives. He thinks, well, you know, I had two parents and four grandparents and eight great-grandparents, and if you go back a hundred years, a thousand years, um, uh, who knows how many people there are, and he can he can get their consciousness, right? Not necessarily the the facts of their lives, but he can understand them as people, and they become alive for him in the stories that he creates. Uh, he uh, wants a better place to write. He's not making a whole lot of money. Uh, he manages to get together some money with a sale that allows him to buy a fifty acre spread miles from downtown and downtown itself must be pretty small perhaps like russell pennsylvania Mm -hmm. Uh, he wants a place to write and finds without even looking for it a one-room shack on the 50 acres he's not much of a hand at tools that function in the world so he hires a carpenter and a painter and so on to refurbish the shack well enough 
that he can use it as his writing office. Um, in the course of the story, he, the writer, the first-person narrator, begins a story of prehistoric days, in fact, antediluvian days. Uh, so there's a little bit of a biblical reference here. And in this story, the main character is a wonderful guy who's trying to win the love of a beautiful Amazon a woman that he calls her Amazon with a lowercase a. Uh, although she is incredibly powerful, her muscles don't bunch up so that she would still look to be a fair girl if you looked on her. Um, she has promised to marry any man who could beat her at wrestling. In fact, as the story is going on, we hear it's report, he reports on it to his wife, the writer does. And she keeps saying, well, haven't I read that kind of stuff before? At one critical moment, she comes and reminds him that they have an evening planned with neighbors. They're go the neighbors are going to pick them up by automobile, take them around to look at different places, and then have dinner and, and uh, play bridge. He doesn't want to do it because these people he's creating, who he's channeling in his writing, need his attention. But his wife says, look, you're spending too much time on that. This is the world. It's important to have neighborly relations. Let's do it. They do it. But when they get back, he says, I've just got to get back out there. It's, just, it's on my mind. The wife says, won't be a problem. Wait till the morning. But when she goes to sleep, he comes out and dresses up, dresses and walks across the property. He gets about two-thirds of the way there when he hears screaming, which apparently puts us right back into the scene in which the, the hero of the story and his would-be uh, bride have been captured by half-men, half-apes, who have staked them out, tied them up so that they can become live sacrifices to this dragon-like god they uh, worship. When that god comes out of his cave by the light of the full moon. Our writer knows that he should have been there to send a cloud across the moon so that they wouldn't see, the dragon wouldn't see, and they would be preserved or something. He needs to save them. But in fact, he wasn't there. He gets knocked unconscious. And when he wakes up, he is bloodied. There are, there are claw marks on him. And... Um, there are footsteps leading from the shack down to a swamp. The man-like footsteps have the large toe further removed than it would be in Homo sapiens, and the heavier footsteps continue on into the mud toward a cave. It ends by having our writer-narrator say, most of these man-footed marks ended at the base of great live oaks, but the large pads that sank a foot into the ground till they could secure footing for the mass above them, those tracks went on through the woods and ended at the mouth of the cave. I am never going to go into that cave, and something else besides the mosquitoes is holding me back. Oh. It's a it's an interesting confessional mm -hmm. about a writer and the world that he believes 
that he has created. <laughs> I think it's actually quite a lovely story in many ways, but I want to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, please. Well, um, well, I think it's probably like largely a true story, um, other than the, you know, there actually being a monster in a cave created by his writings. <laughs> um, I think that part's not. I, I, I do think you know he lived in a small town. He's got a lot of the details in here, and you know the passion of writing versus the remuneration for the writing. Right? He's a doctor. He can as the author is a doctor david h keller is 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 who i'm talking about here is a doctor he he can make a living um probably other ways but he seems to have a passion for writing and his wife is okay with it as long as it's it's you know not as long as they're making money um but she also wants to have a life and and then looking at the parallel of the story he's writing, you know, he's imagining or recalling a past life, um, and I think he's sort of. It's I think it's very well done that he's trying to show that the author's tricking himself into believing that this is a true story, and then when it comes all together uh, at the end, I think that's pretty great. I'm very curious about the title and uh, how that works, but there are a couple of um, points I want to po- point to. Um, one is that. Um, that small town that they live in. So uh, the original town he lived in, in Russell, Pennsylvania, hasn't grown much. It's unincorporated. It has about a thousand people or fourteen hundred or so living in it today. Um, which isn't isn't to say it's disappeared, but it hasn't grown much. Um, and then when he describes the the store where he goes to get his his um, paper, he says after all was ready. I walked to the town and bought 500 more sheets of paper at the local sell-all store. They handled magazines. And then he has quotation marks. Handled is the right word for it. I never heard of anyone buying any except myself, and I only bought the occasional number with a story in it by myself. (laughs) With these 500 sheets of white paper, carbon in a machine in an ideal location, I was sure I could do something worthwhile. And uh, he does spend a, quite a bit of time talking about setting it up, so he's got the perfect atmosphere. He uses this phrase, the su- uh, a suitable surroundings. Um, and he finds the shack out on the edge of a swamp. Um, he goes and sees that cave before uh, he sees it at the end. But then um, when he gets beat up uh, somehow, <laughs> late in the story... Um, his wife saves him, kind of like we think the Amazon was supposed to save him in the, if if he had just not gone to that dinner party, if he had just mm-hmm. you know if he had just spent more time with his his creation. Um, so I want to read uh, another section. This is from the last page. Um, it took time to call a neighbor and send for a doctor, but at last I was in bed, all tended to and bandaged, and very much alive. It seems that my wife spread the news that I had gone out to the shack and met a wildcat. Um, the last David H. Keller story <laughs> we had uh, had wildcat in the title. There were cats in the woods, so the story was credited. It was two days before I was able to walk to the shack, I begged my wife to let me go alone. For her sake, I took a revolver, 
though I knew that it was not necessary. She wanted to go, but I just laughed at her fears. So I walked to the shop where I manufactured stories and people. And that's really interesting because I, I, the first time I read that, I thought, oh, he's talking about he's talking about going to the shop where he buys the thing. But I was reading it wrong. He's talking about that little shack where he manufactures stories and people. The other shop where he's the only one who who handles the magazines that are that the the sell all store carries. He only buys his own stories. The psychology here is really, really fun because our our narrator seems to be describing his own romance with his wife when his wife gets jealous of the Amazon that he's created. He says, I don't have to dream about you. I have you. And she gets very satisfied with that. They have a daughter. Um, their marriage seems to be going very well. And yet he gets lost in this world, beat up by a quote unquote wildcat. <laughs> and I start to think about like what actually happened. <laughs> if you know what I mean, like how did, how did all this go wrong? How did he get beat up? He's, he's saying in a certain sense, he created the reality and that reality is is so real but on the other hand there's this real reality where his wife has to cut up her old dresses to make dresses for their daughter because he's not bringing in enough money so i start to wonder like what's going to happen after this story is he going to move to a bigger town and start practicing some other profession i think he might i i I think that's that's a, a way to read it, um, and, and it's a it's a good way to read it. But I think that when we're told at the end that he's not going to go into that cave, and it's not just the mosquitoes and the swamp that are keeping him out, mm-hmm. um, he believes that is the the first person narrator believes that in fact his writing can create a reality, mm-hmm. and indeed his re- writing comes from channeling. A reality of his own forebears. Uh, this makes me think, since he tells us how powerful the writing is for him in his life, that he's not going to give that up. Uh, he, he says, um, let me see if I can find, yes, his, my writing and the faraway fields that it took me into were the panacea mm-hmm. that made living a happy adventure in spite of my surroundings. And the reason they're so far out is because even after selling a couple of stories, they could only afford a place that's that inexpensive. Um, I don't think he's going to move to town. Um, but, you know, that's you and me arguing about, you know, what happens after the story ends. Uh, the question I think that I, I other questions I would like to look at here um, have to do with or certainly resonate with the question of the utility of the biography of David H. Keller for understanding what's going on in the story mm-hmm. there is a line he, the, the narrator has sold a couple of stories he wants a place to be able to write that's his main motivation in moving 
And so he gets this 50 acres, which apparently he hasn't really walked around a lot. Uh, and he says to himself after he's moved out there, surely in 50 acres there should be some place where a man could find solitude, comfort, and mayhap inspiration. The next line is, and without hunting for it, I found it. Mm -hmm. A one-room shack, and then he goes on to the description. I think that whether Keller intends it or not, and I have no way of knowing his intention, this notion that you can find something when you are not looking for it fits in exactly with the idea that our unconsciousness, our unconscious uh, wishes, our subconscious desires, the things that we aren't looking at, they pop up because we are no longer editing them. We are mm -hmm. no longer shielding them. And what's going on here for this writer is that when he gets into his writing, he has managed to remove himself from all of the distractions of the world and when they are gone it's, it's the things that are within him that come up now that would be fine and it would be a work in praise of writers i suppose if that's end of the the uh, uh, unconscious or the subconscious depending on which psychologist you're reading um but i think it goes further and this is what i'm about to say is part of what I mean when I say the story answers the criticisms. Main, a main criticism of Keller has been that he's very inventive, but he really doesn't pay much attention to writing. Mm -hmm. I think that's false. <laughs> now, here is our narrator explaining to his wife the story that he is in the midst of writing. This antediluvian story of the hero and the Amazon and the half-men, half-apes that are against them. The hero belongs to a race of supermen. Mm -hmm. Our hero, our narrator tells his wife, they decided to move to the west, to the land of the setting sun. Perhaps they wanted to follow the sun on account of the rapid advance of the ice wall, the glacier in their own country. Their advance is through a strange country and hardships of every kind make life an uncertain quantity. Not only are they fought by wild animals of a kind they have never seen before, but there are men, half man and half ape, who block their path and try to steal their women. <laughs> the hero of the story is a young man who is the head man because he is the bravest and strongest of them all. He is in love with a beautiful Amazon in the tribe who has said that she will not marry till she meets a man who is strong enough to conquer her in a wrestling match. The hero announces that he will endeavor to win this fight the next spring at the time of the yearly festival devoted to the sowing of the harvest and the mating of the unmarried in the tribe. Now, how is that for the beginning of a story of all times? My wife yawned. <laughs> Fair, she commented, but there is nothing original about it. It seems to me that I have read things like that before. And from what you have told me, there is not a single thought in the whole 10 pages that is new. That's the part, Jesse, that I think Keller's critics have not been paying attention to. Keller is absolutely aware when he's writing standard stuff. And when he chooses to write standard stuff, it's so that he can enfold it in something that transcends that standard stuff. 
the relationship between the husband and wife is between a man who wishes he could unleash his, uh, his subconscious in order to have a life of adventure and success and heroism and a woman who, by virtue of having a child and a home to take care of, mm-hmm. just sees things more sensibly. Whenever there is a difference in their opinion, she is always right. Mm-hmm. And although he may, in fact, be um, harmed by that monster, the god beast in the cave, he never goes to that cave. It really could have been a wild cat. <laughs> it all could be in his imagination. And Keller then is giving us a story that asks us to understand what is the use of reading stories? What is the use of making stories? And we see where the rapprochement comes, and you've mentioned it before. When the wife says, and I suppose she's blonde, right? Mm-hmm. And when he says that she's blonde and beautiful, the wife says, I suppose so. So someone else that will keep you from dreaming of me. And he says, I don't have to dream of you because I have you. And she says, prettily said, and she she softens immediately. Mm-hmm. There is real love between these two. Mm-hmm. And together they map out a kind of perfect world of both imagination and reality. This is the beginning of the Depression. We're in April 1930. People are worried about their incomes. People are worried about survival. And Keller is giving them a way to do it. And what he's saying is, if you want to survive, if you want that kind of happiness, you need a good partner, a good imagination, and where things might be too scary... Just don't go there. <laughs> I, uh, I, I I love the parallel between the game that he goes to with his wife, the bridge game. They drive to the country, doesn't really notice what's going on. His mind was not on the game. He didn't do well in the game. He says, I played poorly that night. Somehow my mind was not on the game. But earlier in the story, we had the word game as well. Um, he said, he said, this is from the second page. My wife insisted that I took the game too seriously. That is the writing game. And it is true that while writing, I lived my part. I lived the part. My characters were real people to me right up to the last line. And even to the minute that I wrote the end at the bottom of a page, only then would they fade and lose in some way their definite personalities to me. Not just so many word people, but actual living persons. Induced for a few hours to come with me and lead the adventuresome life that I thought out for them. I loved them all, the heroes, ladies fair but frail, villains sorry, evil, but withal lovable. They were perhaps the children of my creative mind. And he has an actual child, right? right. Um, at the end of this, uh, this story that he gets out, uh, hopefully he'll sell it and be able to feed his children or his child with actual product of his creative mind. It, there, it, there's something very nice about the story. It's kind of silly, but it's also, um, it is about a, a uh, wedding that's uh, not a wedding, a marriage that's working, despite you know the occasional trouble getting beat up by wild animals. Perhaps um, 
he the husband's f- perhaps a little too imaginative and the wife is grounding him and bringing him back to earth it's really nice indeed it is he thinks that he's creating the entire world <laughs> but her commentary is always apt and he's wise enough to see it mm-hmm. because when she comments on what he does it becomes clear there's always more to say thanks very much for listening and remember you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep if you enjoyed this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sff audio